Please turn with me or listen on as we conclude now the ninth chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 9, verses 25 through 33. Romans chapter 9, verses 25 through 33. Hear God's word. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved for he will finish the work and cut short. Cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you once more for your word, and we acknowledge to you that we need you to open it to us. We, we sit at, at home and we read our Bibles, and at times we confess we struggle to understand it. We need you to illumine it, and we especially pray now at the time that we've read it together corporately that through the preaching you might use this means of weakness to open up your word to us in the power of your spirit. And so we ask this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've concluded uh, what is some of the highest theology, really, that one can find in all of Scripture. We would have to look to Ephesians to find anything uh, comparable to what we've just read in Romans chapter 9. We have considered God's complete, God's free sovereignty... In the salvation of man, as he chooses one, so he rejects another. He's God. We're not. Who are we to question him? That's been the discussion so far. But he concludes that discussion. That discussion occurs in uh, chapter nine, verse six through twenty four. In twenty four, he says, reminding us of the broader point, namely what of the Jews and God's purpose He says, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. That's verse 4, 24. That's how he concludes this exalted discussion of God's sovereignty. That is, as the potter, which is what uh, Paul describes him as, that's what God describes himself as. God fashions vessels of mercy, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. He doesn't only call Jews, he calls Gentiles as well. How else do you explain the presence in the first century of these Gentile Christians in Rome to whom Paul was writing? 
Clearly, God is able to fashion for himself vessels of mercy from any group of people. His saving work is not confined to the Jews. It includes them, yes, but it's not confined to them. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. But that in turn leads Paul to reflect upon this. The fact that, it's a double fact, the fact that now the Gentiles are in. Do you appreciate the significance of that, given the long history of the Old Testament? Jews only. Now Gentiles are in the church. But equally, as a second fact, that so many Jews are out. Both facts. And so, really, verses 25 uh, to the end of the chapter are an exposition of that closing thought of verse 24. Even as us of whom he called, not of Jews only, but also of Gentiles. The fact that God calls not only Jews, but Gentiles as well. And how this means not only that many Gentiles are in a scandal in and of itself in those days, but equally that many, many Jews are out. In fact, the actual position of the New Testament church, which remains true to this day, is that the church is predominantly, it is overwhelmingly Gentile. And there are precious few Jews or sons of Abraham that find their way into the church. Paul was highly exceptional. And we saw how dramatic his conversion was in Acts chapter 9. What was found in his heart was and is still found in the heart of so many Jews. The veil lies over their hearts. They are hostile to Christianity. They're not inside. They're standing outside. Now, how did that ever come to be? And what are we to make of that? That's what Paul is dealing with here in these verses. Once again, we are considering the purposes of God. And so look at how the argument unfolds. The first thing he says in verses 25 and 26, quoting the prophet Hosea, is that the Gentiles are in. I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. You see, the apostle here, no surprise, is supporting his case, especially to uh, the Jewish Christians in the church, of whom there were still some, though not many, but especially as he spoke uh, to those who were standing outside, that this scandal of the Gentiles coming in really wasn't so scandalous, not from the standpoint of their own scriptures, the Old Testament. There we find God through the prophet is predicting this. Merely by considering the Old Testament scriptures, we see how unsurprising it was that as a matter of prophetic fulfillment, that God should call the Gentiles and include them in uh, his purposes. I'm reminded here of Richard of what Richard Sibbs said in uh, the little book, The Bruised Reed. It isn't a book on prophecy. You know that if you've read it. Nevertheless, he says this uh, in the book. He says, the faithful Jews rejoice to think of the calling of the Gentiles. And why should we not joy to think of the calling of the Jews? He's talking to Christians today. He's saying, you know, why shouldn't we look forward to the Jews who've been rejected, brought back in? As, as Paul says, they will in chapter 11. Do you realize, Sibs is saying, and I think we could justify that based on a text like this, that that's exactly what the faithful Jews, even in the Old Testament, there weren't many. And we'll see that too. But the faithful Jews were looking forward in faith to the day that God would call the Gentiles. They weren't anxious about it. They were excited about it. And so really the faithful Jews should have said, isn't this wonderful? The days have come. 
in which God is fulfilling his word. The position, in essence, is the same in both covenants. Do you realize that? Only they are reversed. In the old covenant, it's the Jew who's looking forward to the calling of the Gentiles. Their prophets predicted it. You could see it in Hosea. In many ways, it's veiled in Hosea. I'm going to say that in a moment. It's an interesting choice by the Apostle Paul. There are other places where it's less veiled. It's more explicit. But it is obviously something the prophets looked forward to. But now the same is true, only in reverse in the, in the New Covenant. The Jews are out. The Gentiles are in. What is the Gentile to do? He's to look forward to the calling of the Jews. No, there's nothing surprising here. Not to one who knew his Old Testament. But again and again we see, and we'll see this in the chapters uh, or in the, the sermons to come. The tragedy of the Jews that they didn't know their own scriptures. There's two things I need to say about Paul's use of Hosea here. One is the way that he employs Old Testament prophecy, and the same can be said of Isaiah when we come to that next. Obviously, well, if you're aware, uh, Paul, you, you, you can be sure Paul also was aware of the more immediate setting in Hosea, which dealt not actually with the calling of the Gentiles, but with the calling of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel. That's what God is speaking about here. Uh, through his prophet. And yet, if we understand how prophecy works, we will understand why Paul takes the liberty of expansion, if I could call it that way. The Apostle Paul understands, as I think the faithful Jew would have understood, that there are very often, uh, if not always, I don't want to speak that uh, that uh, in such a, a sure strain. I'll just say very often in the prophets, there are multiple points of fulfillment, not just one. There are immediate points of fulfillment, but there are also uh, there are more ultimate and and final points of fulfillment. Uh, One of the ways that I could make this point is that if you can find the fulfillment of the word of the prophets to the old covenant, you're probably missing something very important. The Apostle Paul is saying, yes, of course, I know he doesn't even need to say it. I know that Hosea was speaking to those in his own day. But do you realize he was also, along with all the prophets, looking forward to something that God would do in the new covenant? And we can easily see how these words could apply not only to the northern tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom, but how they found their fulfillment in uh, in the calling of the Gentiles in the new covenant. In fact, the reading on its own, apart from the context of of Hosea, more naturally applies to the Gentiles. We don't read this on its own of, of speaking of. The, 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 the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. It really reads like God is speaking of the calling of the Gentiles. I will call them my people who were not my people. Oh, and as this was true in Hosea's day, so it's true in our own. That's what the apostle is saying. And he's saying it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is saying here is here is one of the fulfillments, fulfillments of uh, my word through the prophet. But the other thing is that though it might seem obvious, I'm I'm trying to make it seem obvious. It ought to have been obvious that to the Jew, this was something God was going to do. He was going to call the Gentiles. How could any Jew have missed that? It was obvious, in fact, in what God said to Abraham. This prospect of worldwide blessing through the Jews. It could never be confined to one nation, but through one nation, God would bless the world. How did they miss it? Nevertheless. Paul is acknowledging, obvious though it ought to have been, it wasn't obvious. And the reality is that for the Jew in that day, and we might even say for the Jew today, there is something ultimately which is scandalous about what God was doing here in the way in which he was, through the Jews, 
calling the Gentiles and then rejecting the Jews. There was something not only scandalous, but it was like, as Paul says, a stumbling block. This was difficult for the Jews to accept. It made them not more likely. It ought to have made them more likely since it was a clear matter of prophetic fulfillment. It didn't make them more likely to receive the message of Christianity. It made them less likely. They said, Paul, your message is against us. It's not for us. We've got to recognize that. And so Paul goes on as a next point to deal with that in uh, the passage which follows, which deals not with the calling of the Gentiles, but the rejection of Israel. Once again, we notice the same principle with regard to the prophecy. Let me read it, though. The number of uh, the prophet cries out, by the way, concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness and so on. Again, same principle. Isaiah is predicting something that they would see in his own day. The demise of Israel at the hand of the Assyrians. And yet the same truth could be found in Paul's own day. He found another fulfillment under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, especially uh, not only here, but in 70 A.D. God would bring, as he did uh, through the Assyrians many centuries before, he would bring in 70 A.D. destruction upon his people of old. He will do so thoroughly, even as he promised. And so the situation in Paul's day had an exact parallel uh, to the situation in Isaiah's day. And we might even say many other times in the Old Testament. And so we ought to notice here, and this is another point that should have been obvious, that the whole concept of God judging Israel or rejecting Israel as a people, as a nation, was nothing new. It's not as though this was the first time God had ever done that. Go back and read your Old Testaments, and what you will find is, Repeated acts of judgment, repeated acts of rejection. God was always dealing with them as a rebellious son. He was always bringing his judgment against them. And so if anything else, the history of the Old Testament should have supported this current situation as found in the church rather than made it seem surprising. It should have prepared God's dealing with them then in the early church should have or, or, or I mean the history of the Old Testament should have prepared them for what they were facing in the early church as one whom the Lord rejected. And yet out of this situation, both in Isaiah's day and in Paul's, Isaiah says a remnant would be saved. The remnant will be saved, even as the Lord is finishing his work, the work of judgment, which he will surely bring. Nevertheless, a remnant will be saved And he's really saying two things when he says that in the context of judgment. The first is that God's work of uh, of rejecting and punishing Israel will be so thorough. It will be so overwhelming that only a remnant would be left. Just think about that, how severely God was dealing with them as a nation. Only a remnant would be left. And yet that's the negative. On the other side, at the same time, we could say, here's the positive because because God saves a remnant, his rejection of Israel is not complete. You see, God is doing something negative, but he's also doing something positive. And that's how we should always view his work. He would preserve for himself a people, however small. Again, it was true in Isaiah's day. It was true in Paul's day. We can say it is true today. We can be sure of that. This is a matter 
of God's own word, which has not failed. It is still being carried forth. And this also confirms the truth of an earlier statement. In many ways, the ultimate statement of these three chapters, chapters 9 through 11, he says, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. There you find the idea of the spiritual seed, the spiritual children, the children of promise are the true seed, the true spiritual heirs of Abraham. Who are they? Well, they're the remnant. It's through the remnant that God's purpose is being carried out. It is to the remnant that his promises were made and to whom he will ever be found to be faithful. No, his word has not failed. His purposes have not fallen to the ground. They stand to this day. So there's his answer to the Jews. But then a third truth is found in verse 29, again, quoting the prophet Isaiah. He says, unless the Lord of uh, Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Unless the Lord had saved a remnant, all would have been lost or a seed. It's the same idea. Unless the Lord, to use language from the earlier verses, prepared for himself vessels of mercy out of this mass of corruption in Israel, none would be saved. The whole nation, if the Lord had not done this, if he had not sovereignly acted to save some, the whole nation would have been given over to judgment, even as in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. Although even then you can see him saving just a little remnant with Lot. And his daughters. If the Lord had not acted this way. All of Israel would have fallen again. You just think of not only Isaiah's day, but even Moses day. This was always the case. If the Lord had not acted in mercy, all would have fallen. All would have been judged. Israel would have been rejected in uh, in total. So there is a very important principle. And once more, we see how it was found in the Old Testament. The surprising thing, and I know that we like to speak this way. Let us see how thoroughly scriptural this idea is. The surprising thing is not that so many are lost. The surprising thing from the vantage point of the Old Testament is not, or from the New Testament, that God has rejected his people, the people of Israel. The surprising thing is that any are saved at all. If the Lord had not saved a remnant, all would be lost, even as in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, there's no scandal. If you read the Old Testament, you'll agree with me. There's no scandal that God brought judgment against Israel through the Assyrians or through the Romans in AD 70. No scandal whatsoever. Her sin and rejection of God was apparent all through the history of the Old Testament. It is apparent, I say again, to this day. But that God would take the trouble in mercy, in love, in grace to save any of them, however small in number. That's the real scandal, if I may call it that. If anything makes you scratch your head and wonder at God's ways, it ought to be that you ought to think unless the Lord had saved or left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. That's the lesson of history. That's the lesson of Israel. That's the lesson Israel herself ought to have learned. But the simple fact is that a remnant is saved. And all are not given over to destruction. Understand uh, with whom you are dealing, Paul is saying, the Lord. And yes, he's full of vengeance, he's full of wrath. But he's also a God 
who is disposed to be merciful as he promised throughout the Old Testament. Because God is gracious and he wills to save a remnant of his people for himself, so a remnant will be saved. And so God's uh, promises and his word and his purposes uh, stand to this day. And the rejection and the sinfulness of his people are not able to knock them over, so to speak, or cause them to fail. And so the position, he says, is this in verses 30 and 31. The jet, you notice he's summarizing the situation. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained a righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. Verse 30. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. You notice he's summarizing the situation uh, in answer to the question, what shall we say then? Which is a favorite refrain in Paul's letters. What shall we say then? I could give you a list of places where he says that in Romans. It's his favorite way of dealing with difficulties. What are we to make of this? The reality not only of the words of the prophets, but the situation as was found in his own day. What is the position we're facing? It's this, he says. Again, very simply, The Gentiles are in, the Jews are out, which he states in this thorough way. One of the things that you might notice about what he's saying here is that he's not, though he's seeking to win the Jews, he doesn't minimize the difficulty. He actually maximizes the difficulty deliberately. Here is what he's actually saying, and it matches both the scriptural facts and the historical situation. Several things are said about the Gentiles in verse 30. He says, first, they did not pursue righteousness. Righteousness was not their concern. What is righteousness? Righteousness is conformity to a standard. And what is the standard? The standard is God's law. Now, think about what I was reading in Romans chapter 1. And what you find in Romans chapter 1 is a description of man and sin. And man and sin is someone who has no thought of God. You can find many descriptions of that throughout scripture. And, and, and his soul's Or his life's ambition is sin. Constantly he's thinking of sin. He's devising new ways to sin. It's the thing that fills his heart. It's the thing that fills his life. His life is devoid of God. It's devoid of righteousness. He isn't seeking after righteousness. He's seeking after sin. That's, well, that's the tale of the Gentiles, Paul says. That's the tale, we could say, of our own nation. And yet here's the scandal. It's the amazing thing. There they were, these Gentiles, standing outside, concerned only to uh, fill up the measure, the full measure of their sin. And yet they have attained to righteousness, even as they did not pursue it. So they attained it. That's almost beyond belief. You see, he's not minimizing the difficulty. He's maximizing it. Do you realize the full extent of the scandal? In a sense, he's saying, I doubt you do. It's even worse than you realize. I understand the difficulty. And yet that is what actually happened. Those who weren't seeking it, those who were opposed to it, are the ones who found it. Even as he'll say in a moment, those who were seeking did not find it. How did they find it? Well, chapter 10 is going to be all about this point. And so if I say so little here, please understand why. I'm going to be talking all about it in chapter 10. But the reason, and this is just like Paul, he introduces an idea, then he elaborates upon it. He'll do so in chapter 10. Because on hearing the message, they believed. That's what we're going to see in Acts, by the way. Paul is preaching to the Jews. They keep rejecting it. 
But the amazing thing is when he goes to the Gentiles and he preaches to them, they believed it. And in just this way, God was rejecting the Jews and he was bringing in the Gentiles. What is it that explains the place of the Gentiles now in the church? That they have arrived at righteousness even as the Jews have not. Because they have attained, he says, even the righteousness of faith. They attained what they did not seek because on hearing the gospel they believed. And so they were justified by faith alone. Whereas, come to the Jews. Things were far different. Indeed, the complete reverse. For one thing, he says, Israel was pursuing the law of righteousness. Attaining righteousness was their aim. You see, a total reversal. The Jews were standing outside. They didn't care. They could have cared less. The Jews were in. And the thing that consumed their life, uh, the, 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 the aim that they sought after, or the goal, or the prize, was to be righteous. Think of what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He says, as to the law, blameless. That's how the Jew viewed himself. They really felt that they had found it. Already, I think you can see the problem. It wasn't just they were pursuing it wrongly, but they thought they had found it. How did they think they had found it? By the law God had given them. Pursuing the law of righteousness. And because so they imagined they were blameless with respect to the law, so they were righteous in their own eyes and as well in the, in the eyes of God, so they thought. But the thing to see which underscores the irony as well as the tragedy of the Jews is that righteousness was for them the big thing. Their whole life was consumed with this single thing. They really wanted to be righteous while the Gentiles could have cared less. It was the furthest thing from their minds. But he says, completing the thought in verse 31, Israel pursuing this law of righteousness did not attain it. Appreciate what Paul is telling us. They thought they had it, but they hadn't. They they sought the righteousness of the law. And instead of attaining it, the reality was the opposite. The law did not justify them. It condemned them. It showed them to be sinners, not saints. That was the tragedy of the Jews. Again, Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why, he asks. Why is it thus today? That those who sought it did not find it and those who did not seek it found it. That's the question. It's the question he asks in verse 32. You see just simply why. Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by The works of the law. You've got to think about everything he's said up to this point. And really what he'll go on to expand in chapter 10. The key consideration revealed in the gospel is that righteousness is found by the one who is faith, not works. Who is the man who is righteous in the eyes of God? It's not the man who says, God, I have works. Because none have works. It's the one who has faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. That's the one whom God justifies. That's the one whom God declares to be righteous. And the Jews, here's the tragedy. The Jews of all people, though righteousness was their great concern, have missed this. They thought they were listening to the law, but they weren't. The law was speaking to them, but they weren't listening. They thought the law was saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Something like that. You've done it. That's what they thought the law was saying. That's not what the law was saying. The law was saying this, Paul says, Romans chapter 3. You are guilty, you are sinful, you are lost. That's what the law says to everyone. 
all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a single person who's righteous in all the world, not even the best Jew who ever lived and the most careful Jew. You see, they didn't hear what the law was telling them. Had they really listened to the law, as Paul outlines it in Romans chapters 1 through 3, they would have rejoiced to hear the message of the gospel. In other words, they would have had faith. But the tragedy is they were still relying on their works. And not only that, they were rejecting the gospel when it was preached to them. They heard in the gospel of God's righteousness. There, there is the key thought. Righteousness offered to them as sinners is a gift. The gospel says you're a sinner. You can never be righteous through your own works. And I offer it to you freely as a gift in the person of Jesus Christ. If, to anyone who hears the law, for whom the law has truly done its work, convicting, condemning us as a sinner, that's the best news you'll ever hear. Righteousness, the thing I wanted most. Or perhaps the thing I needed, but I never knew it. Like the Gentiles. I wasn't seeking it, but now I see it. It's the thing I need more than anything else to be right with God. And he would offer it to me freely. You would have thought they would have rejoiced to hear this, only they resented the whole notion of righteousness as a gift, as a free gift. Why? Because they thought they were righteous. They thought they already were. And they resented it, and then they stumbled over it. That's what he says next. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Look at these Jews pursuing after righteousness, thinking they found it. Soon Paul will speak of their tremendous zeal in doing so in chapter 10. And yet not only did they fail to attain what they thought they had, but when the real opportunity for righteousness, the very thing they sought and thought they had found, when it stood in their very midst in the person of Jesus Christ, they stumbled and fell. Here was the thing they wanted most and God was giving it to them. And just as he did so, they stumbled in unbelief. Here's the picture. Instead of Israel in the, in the New Testament Gospels, and I will say again, even to this day, Standing upright and righteous, she fell on the stone of righteousness. She's fallen down. There she lay in ruin as she does to this day. Why? Because God laid in Zion, in the midst of the Jews, not in the midst of the Gentiles. Again, we wonder at his ways. In Zion, he laid the rock of salvation which is the free gift of righteousness. And rather than building on this rock, as Jesus says we must do, or resting on it secure as a sure foundation, they stumbled over it and fell. They took offense once more at the whole notion of righteousness as a gift. Jesus came and said to them, as he says to you, unless you become like a child, you can never see the kingdom of God. You can never come in. You'll always stand outside. What's a child? A child someone who has nothing uh, nothing to offer a child, someone, as Machen says, who's willing to receive a gift. But the proud man is not. He turns away the gift. He shuns it. Everything he must earn. No, Jesus says you must become like a child. How this offended them. He said elsewhere, you've you've got to be poor in spirit. Otherwise, you'll always stand outside. You've got to be born again, though you were born a Jew. You've got to believe in me. I'm the gift. You see, Jesus, Jesus is the stone and it is on him that they stumbled and fell. But the other side of this is that the Gentiles, though they were living this life of sin on the outside, even as God was laying the stone in Zion. When the gospel was preached to them, when it went forth out of Jerusalem, as we're reading in Acts, 
they believe. That's the wonder. And what God says in verse 33, he says to the Jews, so he says to the Gentiles, and so I say to you, not only I lay and sigh on the stone of stumbling, but whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The Jews did not believe, so they stumbled and fell. The Gentiles believed, and they were not put to shame. What's the picture? The picture is the Jews have something to be ashamed about. They are going to feel, they may not today, but one day they're going to feel embarrassed that they missed what was so plain and obvious. They're going to be ashamed. But the Gentile, or even the Jew who believes this message, will never be put to shame. He has nothing to be ashamed of, not now and not in the day of judgment. Let me come to three points of conclusion. There are three big ideas that are conveyed here. Uh, And in the chapters to come, we will have opportunity to expand upon them. Although one, we've done so extensively, but the other two, we've we've yet to do. So if you want me to say more, give me opportunity to, to do so in the sermons to come. The first is the importance of the doctrine of the remnant, as he states through Isaiah in verse 27 and verse 29. Really, the idea of the remnant is what explains the difficulties we have. If you look at the Apostle Paul here, he was a man in a sense, at least in a fleshly sense, in difficulties. He was mourning over his people. He recognized they were standing outside even as he was standing in. And he was longing that they would come in along with him. And it's similar, I think. I think it's very fair to say that we're in an analogous situation. We look around us and we're, we're in difficulty. We look at the state of our countrymen. We look even at the state of the church and we say, why are things as they are? Why are they not better? What's the answer? That's the question. What's the answer? The answer, at least in part, it isn't the full answer, but is the doctrine of the remnant. And I think a paragraph in in one of Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons is one of the most helpful paragraphs I've ever read. I want to share it with you. He says, the question, the the fifth deduction is the question of the significance of numbers in connection with the church and her function. And the answer is that numbers do not matter at all. God preserves a remnant. He preserves a seed. Only a handful, perhaps. It does not matter. We need not be concerned about that. We must not be ashamed of being a remnant, weak and small. This is God's way. In a sense, it can even become a privilege. We must cease to think in terms of numbers. We must think in terms of the purpose of God and the purity of the witness and the testimony. God will preserve this seed. He will carry it on in spite of everything, thank God, if we belong to the faithful remnant. I love that. There's more to say, by the way. That's not the full picture. But but that in itself is a very helpful thing. It, it's something I think you need to hear. It's something I need to hear. We're all preoccupied with numbers. And that's all right as far as it goes. But it's not the ultimate thing. And very often God works in a contrary way. The second thing we need to see, and this is something I've talked about extensively already, though I will have more to say in sermons to come, and that is the sovereignty of God and salvation, that salvation is all of God. Look at God withholding his blessing from one and giving it to another. Even as he predicted through the prophets, so he was doing. Look at these Gentiles first. They weren't seeking righteousness, and yet it found them. I I prefer that way of putting it. Not they found it. They did. But I think a little better to say it found them. Grace surprised them completely as it, well, as it always does. They weren't seeking it, and yet it found them. How do we explain that the Gentiles are saved? For that matter, how do you explain that you were saved? 
Not that I was seeking to be saved. Don't ever say that. But even as I was dead in trespasses and sin, even as I was filling up the measure of my sin, so grace found me. It sought me out and found me. And I am what I am by the grace of God. That's the wonder. God in his grace found me. He's the hound of heaven. He hunted me down. I didn't seek him. I was running away. That's the picture. But equally, equally we can see this in, the, in, the, in uh, the, those believing Jews, the remnant, like Paul. How do we account for their salvation? The fact that they do not perish along with the rest. Was it that they were good while the others were bad? Hardly. All deserve to die. Unless the Lord preserves a seed, all would be a Sodom and Gomorrah. It isn't that some were good and some were bad. No, all were bad. All deserve to die. The only reason there's a single believing Jew is because God, who is rich in mercy, chose to demonstrate or to show forth his graciousness in them. And so I say again, as I've said many times, there wouldn't be a single person who was saved. Not a single Christian in the world, if not for God. But because God is who he is, we may be sure that many will be saved. His word has not failed. His purposes he will not forego. He will not give the world in total over to ruin. He will leave for himself a seed in all ages. You can be sure of that. But finally, and in many ways, this is the real thrust of the passage. And I will only begin to introduce here what I will have more to say about in chapter 10. And you may have been wondering, am I ever going to say anything about this if you've been listening to these sermons? And that is, what about human responsibility? Well, here we begin to get the answer. You see, divine sovereignty is one thing, but human responsibility is another. And here he begins to deal with that thought. And indeed, for all of chapter 10, so he will as well. The idea is, and we've already seen this in Romans chapter 1, if man is lost, he is no one to blame but himself. You might have thought it was otherwise based on earlier expositions, even last week, but it's not so. If man is lost, he is no one to blame but himself. In other words, he can't blame God. Look at the case of the Jews. The very stone was laid in their midst, and yet they stumbled on it. Now, who's to blame then? Only themselves. That's what Paul is saying. As he says in Romans chapter 1, God has clearly revealed himself to man so that man is left without excuse. He doesn't have any, anything left to excuse himself on the day of judgment. How much more so the Jews to whom he revealed himself in the person of his own son. So that what we find is that. The reason they did not attain what they sought is because they did not seek it by faith, but but as it were, by the works of the law. Why are the Jews standing outside, Paul is saying? Because of their own unbelief. They have no one to blame but themselves. Now, it's very important that this doctrine be stated not as a separate doctrine, but alongside the other. In other words, that we deal with human responsibility and God's sovereignty together, however much of a mystery is set before us. But it's important because, as Paul is doing here, it gives a complete picture of the situation. Again, the situation is, with respect to the church, the Jews are out, the Gentiles are in. Why are the Jews out? Well, Paul gives two answers along both lines. One, because God has rejected them. That is the side of divine sovereignty. It was his holy will. But that's only part of the answer. 
The other part, which completes the total picture, is that the Jews are out because of their unbelief. And that's the other side, that of human responsibility. What you see is that neither answer is adequate in itself. Because, as we've seen, apart from God's sovereignty, no one would be saved. Man does not get credit for his faith. You see, that's not how human responsibility works. You don't get the credit for your faith if you believe. No, uh, by grace you've been saved, and this is the gift of God. The apostle says in Ephesians chapter 2, not of yourselves, not of works, lest any should boast. All would be lost but for God. Unless the Lord has left the seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would, would have been made like Gomorrah. But at the same time, we cannot blame God for our sin. He's not responsible for that since the sin we commit is our own. So that any are saved is solely due to God and his grace. And that many are lost and damned is because of their own sin. Man is responsible for his own ruin. But in the matter of salvation, he gets no credit whatsoever. That's the teaching. But do you see, I have no interest, nor does Paul, in denying the other side, that of human responsibility. I'm not so exalting uh, the doctrine of God's sovereignty as to exclude him in responsibility. No, I'm very eager to include it. I'm very eager to show you as best I can how these two things stand side by side. I'm saying both things are true. And because they're both true, well, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And so let me try to explain to you very briefly as I close how this works. God is sovereign, absolutely, in the salvation of sinners. And it is in his sovereignty that he graciously invites sinners unto himself to come and be saved. That's how it works. And that's what he's doing here. And his promise to guilty sinners in his sovereignty is that all who come, all who believe in him, whether they be Jew or Gentile, they will not be put to shame. They will stand upright today and forevermore. They will stand in his grace. They will stand in the day of judgment. In a sense, you see, I'm not really interested in, in, in asking you whether you're elect. And that's your business to make your calling and election sure. That's not my interest, nor is it Paul's. I only want to know this. Do you believe this gospel? He's speaking to you. He's speaking to the Jews. And do you believe it? Or are you ashamed of it? Isn't it interesting to see him saying that there? He'll never be ashamed. Do you remember what Paul says at the beginning? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who's not ashamed. Oh, listen to him. He says to you. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So then, do you believe it? Or have you, like the Jews, stumbled? Have you taken offense and have you fallen? Amen. Let us come together to the table.